following audio is a Sunday sermon from Red Church in Blackburn, Australia. For more information about the church and its ministry, please go to www.redchurch.org.au. Uh, Well done on getting here. As the guy said, it is daylight savings change day and it's the bad one where you have to get up earlier. The other one's quite good because you wake up early, getting up at the same time. Uh, But if you are just arriving, don't feel bad. Uh, There was a stage when uh, I came to this church being the junior, a senior leader, but as the junior member. And in my first year being the junior sort of, I don't know, youngest member of the staff, uh, I was scheduled to preach on this particular day, and this was the days before mobile phones automatically updating, and uh, this was also the stage when uh, the church uh, met in South Melbourne. So I was living in Blackburn South and did receive a call, where are you? Um, and you oh, you know, and uh, was told that I needed to be uh, basically ready to preach in 40 minutes. That's where my sermon began. Uh, and I live 40 minutes away. Um, somehow I managed to get dressed, not speed, and get there. It actually wasn't a bad way to sort of preach because you sort of walked out to applause. Um, <laughs> although I think it was sarcastic applause, uh, which you can tell in Australia because we add a few little, we go, hey, here he is, hey, you know, which if any other nation said would actually sound encouraging. But for some reason, Australians saying it, it's just like, okay, all right. But uh, we are not in a series. We're in a two-week mini couple of sermons. And the reason that we don't have a slide up to to name them is really what we just want to do is for two weeks is just reflect on a particular challenge that's before us. We are are currently looking um, as a team in the office as a planning for next year, planning for the next few years and asking God, what do you want of us? So there's been prayer there's been listening to God, there's been, you know, getting the calendar will out will happen soon, the staff reporting back us, you know, working together on where we see God taking us. And one thing that's really emerged in those discussions is a challenge that I think is a challenge and an opportunity. This is not just a challenge for Red, um, it's also a challenge that has come up quite clearly in the last few weeks as I've spoken to some different leaders around our city. I spoke to some people from two different people from two churches which are very uh, doing quite well and both of these groups said that this particular challenge is their biggest challenge. I spoke to two groups who are experiencing decline and who God has used and filled with really lovely godly people, faithful but are realizing because of this challenge, um, there's a horizon. And that horizon means that that institution and that group that God's been working in, that there's actually an end point for that. So I want to dig into this, but I want to do that by looking at Scripture. So I'm going to get you to uh, turn to uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And... Uh, you have, um, I've got the big water today. I'm just, it's just going to get bigger every week, I think. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, while you turn your pages. Okay, so 
before we set this up, what we're going to do is um, I'm actually going to get someone else to set this up. And I'm doing this for two reasons, because they do it so well. And secondly, uh, we're going to watch a video from the Bible Project. If you are someone who wants to know more about God's Word and you are trying to work out how to do that, perhaps you're at the beginning of your journey, perhaps you've been in your journey for a long time, fantastic resources such as commentaries and books, they're expensive. Uh, The Bible Project, uh, I know these guys and they're fantastic and all of this is free, it's all online. They have an app, they have videos, Uh, they basically felt God called them to share the Bible to the world. And many of the people who work for them have backgrounds in places like Disney and, and places like that and feel God's actually asking them to use that creativity to actually teach His Word. So, we're just going to watch a setup uh, for three minutes and we're hoping I've set this up correctly and uh, this is going to set up Acts for us. So, enjoy. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who's just come back to life, which is mind-blowing to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus kept teaching them about his upside-down kingdom, the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire, it filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. That was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. What's this all about? Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. Which brings us to Luke's tale of two temples. So you've got the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, where Jesus' disciples worship like the rest of the Israelites. But now there's also Jesus' temple, which consists of people. This temple's meeting together in homes all over Jerusalem, and they were approaching life in a radical new way. 
Right, think about it. Many of these pilgrims aren't even from Jerusalem, so they formed these new families, and they're all depending on each other. Yeah, people would sell their stuff, provide for the poor among them. They ate their meals together. They said their daily prayers together. They were learning from the apostles what it meant to live as if Jesus is the true king of the world. And it must have been exhilarating. But it was... Mini mobile temples. A new people brought together to be God's people in the world. An explosion out of Jerusalem, like a shockwave through the world, called the church. The presence of God, which went ahead of people in the wilderness as a burning tower of fire. The fire that was on top of Mount Sinai when Moses was given the Torah law instructions The image of that being above every individual believer's head at Pentecost, meaning that it's now above your head when you follow Jesus Christ. That you take that presence into the world. And so that vignette that the Bible Project guys painted there, we see in Acts 2, 42, where it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. They centered themselves around the apostles and their teaching. The apostles who had followed Jesus, understood his way, not just learned it as an intellectual thing in night school, but actually walked it out with him. Jesus sent them out into mission. And so when Jesus was resurrected after dying on the cross for the world's sins, he spends 40 days with them, teaching them his way. So the disciples are now replicating what Jesus did for them, they're now replicating it amongst their own disciples now, which is the church. And so they devote themselves to teaching. It's centered around Jesus' way and his teaching. It's centered around fellowship, which is different to community. Fellowship is centering around Jesus, seeking his kingdom, and then community or connection happens as a byproduct of that. Community is when we try and connect people with no centering principle. Everyone, verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This is signs of the end of the age when God will right the world and now these things, these miracles that are going to be indicative of the miraculous age to come at the end of time when Jesus returns are breaking out now into the presence. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. This is symbolic of the change in economic order that happens at the end of the world, where no one is in lack, where injustice does not exist. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is an image of the church operating in the Spirit. And every renewal or turnaround moment in the church's history always begins with a question when some believer somewhere sits and reads their scriptures and hears this, and instead of just seeing this as a distant thing in the past, asks a question, which is, why not now? This is my spiritual reality now. This is what I read there. Why not now? And so, 
we see that what's happened when God has gathered His people is there is a few building blocks that we must reckon with when we ask the question, why, want, why not now? We are excited when we see in Acts 2, 42 to 47, the kingdom influence. I get excited when I see that image in the Bible Project video from above of just that shockwave going out from Jerusalem. That's pretty much the entire reason I want to show that. I get excited when I see the fact that the people have the little fires above their heads and that they're mini mobile temples. This sounds very different than just going through the motions of doing church. This is about God's kingdom plan to reunite the world to Him, to reunite heaven and earth, and for every knee to bow before the risen Christ. So kingdom influence is when that influence goes into the world. Jesus' great commission to make the whole world disciples of Him. For the poor to be served. For the kingdom to be preached and spread and lived. And we see that there's a story here where this kingdom influence then explodes out of the disciples. But before this, it's not like Jesus met the disciples at the side of the lake and Peter and his friends put down their nets and all of a sudden exploded into kingdom influence. No, there's some building blocks. For three years, the disciples apprenticed themselves to Jesus and his way. As I said, this wasn't just intellectual knowledge. They didn't go and get a degree in theology. They followed Jesus. They lived with Jesus They ate with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They saw Jesus serve. And they learned his way and walked it out, walking into it. Now, what's really interesting is you realize that when Jesus is risen from the dead, the guys like Thomas, guys like Peter, they don't really get it. At this point, In kingdom influence, Peter gets it. Peter preaches at Pentecost. Did he get it? What point did he get it? We're not exactly sure. But they were still walking it out before they got it. We have this contemporary idea that I have to understand every element of this. I've got to be completely intellectually filled to understand every element and mystery of faith before I then commit to this. The disciples did it differently. This was Jesus' way. You walked your way into this. So, kingdom influence comes from apprenticing to Jesus and his way. But there's one other element that this was a group of Jewish people. Before kingdom influence, before apprenticing to Jesus and his way, there was a foundation underneath this. These people had been shaped for millennia, shaped in the life formation of biblical wisdom, the knowledge of God. The way that books like Proverbs shape the reality of the world, not shape the reality of the world, they align us with the reality of the world. That the person who just fritters away their day, not thinking about the future, actually has a bad life. That when you treat people terribly, it comes back to you. That the human tongue is actually a dangerous thing. And so there's this foundation of basic life formation. Out of that then comes apprenticing to Jesus and his way 
and then kingdom influence. And when these three come together 2,000 years ago, empowered by the Spirit, the Spirit blows on this. Jesus' death and resurrection brings people to Him and something incredible happens. But we still ask the question, why not now? Why not now? Now, what Jesus was doing... What God was doing, moving history towards his ends, was creating a new people. That's what the Bible Project video outlines, that this was creating a new remnant. In the Old Testament, we see this concept that God doesn't just put a giant advertisement in the sky. He could, but he doesn't, because he believes in relationship and free choice. So he starts with small groups. He starts with a man called Abraham, and calls him out of Babylon. Noah's family, a man called Joseph. He calls a people called Israel, who are a small nomadic tribe on the edge of all the big cultures of the world, to be his people. When Israel doesn't follow Jesus' way, he creates a remnant of the faithful within Israel. When we get to the parts of the Bible where Israel is totally falling into evil and sin and injustice, there is this small group who cry out for God to still move the faithful few. When Jesus, the Messiah, has finally come, the prayers that have been answered, we encounter some of them, old Simon, Anna, in the temple, who are crying out for God to finally come, and it's the faithful few, they're representatives of this remnant who are crying out for God to move. And then in the New Testament, what God does is put this remnant in the world to be a good yeast, to make the bread rise, to be this good bacteria in the system to bring health. And so he places this remnant in the world. The world is not just the geographical place. In biblical language, the world means the systems which oppose God and which are not following his way. And so he places a remnant in that who will follow God, who will not go the way of Adam and Eve, who are disobedient and don't follow God and don't trust him. Instead, they're going to go the way of Jesus, who was obedient and resisted the devil's temptation, resisted the devil's offer to compromise in the wilderness. For what the devil offers, the temptation is not to, hey, Jesus, become a Satanist and just follow me. What he offers him is actually to just change it a little bit, to compromise his faith with another way, to just go off being by a millimeter. And that's the enemy's plot. He begins in the game of millimeters and small consequences. But God's plan is for a remnant empowered by his spirit living in salvation that he gave on the cross to be a change agent in the world. But a dynamic begins to change. Martin Thornton, who was an Anglican English theologian in the 1940s and 50s, he's a high church Anglican, he loved the smells and bells, wrote in very sort of floral language. And he wrote about this, And what he said was that part of the reason why not now is that when the church grew and persecution dropped, all of a sudden a new element entered into the conversation. What he called the nominal Christians. 
They were the people who were part of the Roman system once persecution went and all of a sudden Christianity became an acceptable religion. They realized that there was some advantage to be gained by becoming a Christian. It gives me a bit of meaning in my life and perhaps I'll get that governorship role in that particular Roman province now that Constantine, the emperor, had made Christianity acceptable. People who all of a sudden, as the church grew and generations passed and people were born into Christianity versus choosing it at the threat of death or social exclusion, that all of a sudden there's this group of nominal Christians. And nominal Christians have one foot in the camp and one foot outside. And so this changes the dynamic because they bring something very different. But Thornton said, as do other people who have studied renewal and how God works, like Richard Lovelace and Howard Snyder, that the church is always renewed by a remnant. And that remnant goes out into the nominal Christians and says, why not now? Acts 2, 42 to 47, why not now? Why can't God move and it be like it was at the beginning? Who wants to live with one foot in the world, one foot in the church, one foot in your own plans, one foot in God's plans, one foot in God's lordship, one foot in your own autonomy? Who wants to do this because people who do that pull a hammy? And so remnants don't just renew the church, they also go outside of the church and renew the world. And the story, I haven't even got time now, but the story of the church is of a remnant possessed by God who change. Snyder actually argues that we see this within one generation of the church. If you look at the writings in Revelations, they're already talking about churches that have become lukewarm. And you can go through all throughout the church's history. St. Francis of Assisi, John Wesley, on and on of a small group who refresh because they ask the question, why not now? In all of his floral, very high church, slightly posh English language, Thornton gets very clear at one point in his writing and offers a really helpful illustration. And he gives the illustration of sports. And he says, in some ways, you've got three groups of people. You've got the remnant, the faithful few. You've got the nominal Christians, foot in both camp. And then you've got people in the world who Jesus loves and wants to draw to him. And so he said, sport is a fantastic way to examine this. He said, if you say that, because he's still being a bit posh, if he said, you know, Oxford has a fantastic, is a fantastic cricket school, what he means is, what that means is not that every person at Oxford can play cricket really well, but they've got the best 11 cricket players. So actually the health of any institution is actually represented by the remnant, the faithful few. He develops this and says, if you want to take this into, and he sort of gets off his posh perch and says, if you look at an English football team, the remnant are the ones on the field. They're the ones flying into tackles. They're the ones turning up to training. They're the ones putting their body on the line. They're the ones chasing the ball, defending, scoring goals, getting injured. The nominals are the ones in the stadium. 
Sometimes they clap when things are going well, but sometimes they boo and critique and yell at the players. Australians are very good at this. Everyone's an armchair coach when it comes to sport. Millions of opinions. We even pay some people, they're called sports journalists, to do this. And he said the people outside of the stadium is the world. They've not yet understood the love of the game. So this is a dynamic that has existed in the church for centuries. It's always in play. And I understand what it's like to be in that nominal space. You're not trying to be nominal. You just don't think about it all the time. You love God and it comes into your mind at certain times and you turn up and do the right thing. But it's different to when you get to this point where all that your soul and your spirit wants is for God to move in his fullness. So this dynamic has always happened. But something has changed in our moment and in our time, which is a tremendous challenge. And this is a challenge I referred to at the beginning of the sermon that I'm hearing all over the place. Because we live at a cultural moment where the culture is able to shape us in profound ways, what is actually happening is the chances of new renewals happening are actually being subverted and sabotaged because it's not just the remnant that is able to go out and renew, is that the world is able to reshape not just nominal Christians, but also people in the remnants in incredibly powerful and forming ways. We live in a time of radical individualism, of consumerism, where these shape how we view things and then how we view the church. So we have a system where we have people who want kingdom influence, who are trying to do kingdom influence. We are people who want to be apprenticed to Jesus and his way, but we don't have as a bedrock under us, many of us, years of biblical wisdom and a connecting with how actually reality works and God intersects with that reality. Actually, our life formation is consumerism and radical individualism. So we see the stuff above and we like it and we want it and we ask the question, why not now? But our hearts are shaped and our desires are shaped in a very different way. And so what's dropping off is not people all of a sudden engaging in super evil things. What's actually dropping off is how we relate and think about the practice of discipleship when it's shaped by these influences. And this challenge, I want to say to you, is the biggest challenge that Red is facing. The biggest. And so it creates this gap between the why not now and what's actually happening. And it's because radical individualism and consumerism brings these mentalities to us is we want growth, but we don't want the training that we see in the scriptures that growth requires. We can't do anything to warrant God's salvation, but we're called to step into discipleship. We want community, but we don't want to do it with commitment. We want spiritual advance while keeping our autonomy. 
And because we live in a time of radical individualism and community, uh, sorry, consumerism, we've been told that we can sort of have anything without much difficulty is we want growth without difficulty. The scriptures say nothing of this. The reality is there's two paradigms at play. Paul talks of discipleship in two metaphors. One is military training. The other is athletics training. We bring to discipleship the mentality of Uber Eats. Swipe comes to my door. And this is deadly. And this, as I said, is not an incredibly evil thing. Rather, this is the millimeter compromises of the evil one. And so many people wanting kingdom influence, wanting to follow Jesus and his way, wanting to see this stuff and asking the question, why not now? When we have this foundation of consumerism and radical individualism, find ourselves living with the cost of this gap. Frustration, number one. Frustration that our spiritual lives don't seem to get to this point. We experience this sense of isolation because we deeply want community. We want Christian community, but we're deeply commitment phobic. Deeply commitment phobic. The idea of turning up to something for 12 weeks straight is an anathema. I was talking to someone recently who's involved in wide-scale encouraging people around small groups. And they're like, how do you do small groups anymore? People want them, Bible studies, small groups, whatever you want to call them, cell groups, community groups, people desperately want them. But then we want to turn up to them when we want. This is a huge, huge challenge. People want to grow spiritually, but now the average, what they're calling regular attendance in Australia is once every six weeks. If you're turning up once every six weeks, this is not to be religious or judgmental. I'm just stating truth. That's actually not going to grow you. I'm going to go to the gym, but I'm going to go every six weeks. I want my marriage to improve, but I'm only going to go home for one night in six. I want to play on that team and be the best basketballer I can, but I'm going to go to one in every six trainings. Like, how is it that we understand this stuff when it comes to sport or health? I want to be healthy. I'm going to have Kentucky Fried for five meals and quinoa for one. How come we get it in this realm, but we don't in this realm? It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. So we experience spiritual blockage. We experience the cost of not being released into kingdom life. And this is the biggie, people. And I've just come, literally, from two large-scale organizations who are seeing that after over a century. It could be 10 or 20 years until they're gone. Not because people are evil, not because people are hating on God, not because all of a sudden people are converting to other religions. People want it, but they don't want to turn up. They don't really want it. As in Australia, what will happen is we'll just nicely slip into irrelevance and disappearance. The two people I spoke to from very successful church movements 
so that they can get people there and they can get people in a room, but they can't shape them. So what's happening is people are turning up to these experiences, which are fantastic, and people are doing so well at putting them together, but then in their private worlds, they're not being shaped. And it creates this contrast between the two, where the expectations of what we hear, but then the reality of how that's playing in our life comes and people are leaving faith because of this. And it's not because of the gospel of Jesus. It's not because of the way of the kingdom. It's not because of the trueness of this stuff or the power of the spirit. There's a missing gap in our discipleship. And we have to talk honestly about this. And this is the thing we can challenge at Red. We can at Red just pour out stuff. We can run ourselves ragged doing more stuff. But unless we hit this point, this is the essential question for renewal in our moment. But I want to see it as an opportunity. I want to see it as a challenge that we're actually going to meet. I'm not going to put a black armband on and go, oh, woe is me. Let's just watch the ship slowly sink into the water. This is an opportunity because we get to be at the beginning point because the life script that we're being given by the world actually isn't working anymore. And we get to have this exciting blank slate where we reimagine what it is to follow God in this moment. And you know what? Maybe it's not going to be getting some giant concordance off the shelf and flicking through it. Maybe it's actually getting up and using the Bible Project app every day and watching a video and learning. Maybe it's actually reinventing how we do small groups. But the one thing that's not going to change is that it's still in the patterns of how God has always worked and shaped His people throughout history. So are we afraid? No. Are we meeting this challenge, understanding what it is? Yes. But are we actually going to overcome in Jesus' name? We are. That's actually where we're going. And red's going to build itself around this. So how remnants are shaped, we need to create a remnant. Nominal Christianity is not going to cut it anymore. Nominal Christianity actually doesn't glorify the name of Jesus. And I just want to make a clarification point. When I'm saying nominal Christian, I'm not talking about the person who's sitting here going, Mark, I'm in so much pain. I want to get close to God, but I can't at the moment. Or I'm just in this moment where I'm, I'm just run ragged. Or maybe I've got a new child and it's just struggling to get here at church and just everything's caving in on me at the moment. I'm not talking about people like that. You can grow in whatever situation you're in. In the toughest situations. The question is not what's happening to you. It's whether you're growing and honoring God in that situation. Some of the most God-honoring, growing Christians I've met are in some of the worst, worst life situations. So don't hear me saying, this is you at the moment where you're even, I'm wrestling with this doubt. You can honor God wrestling with your doubt. Look at the Gospels. Look at the doubts of the disciples. Look at the doubts of Thomas still walking towards God. You can be in a moment of, of depression. You can be in a moment of struggling with a physical illness. You've been in a super stressful work situation, relational brokenness. The question is not, so we're so used to, if it feels good, it's good. If it feels bad, it's bad. The gospel is actually, yeah, it may feel bad sometimes and it may feel good. Are you honoring and, and following God and growing in both of them? It's not about the feelings. It's about who you're following. So remnants are shaped by rhythms. And this goes against everything that we're told about the world of being spontaneous, but then actually falling into the same herd-like behaviors that everyone else does. This is about commitment. The church is being destroyed by commitment phobia. If you are someone who says, I'm a bit commitment phobic, that's not the way of the kingdom. The kingdom has not been advanced by that. Missionaries have not taken the gospel to places like around here, in the 19th century because they were commitment phobic. 
The gospel goes out into the world, the poor are served, the gospel is preached, the kingdom is spread when people are committed to Jesus. And therefore, we need to approach our discipleship through a lens of training, through a lens not of consumers and sitting back, oh, what do you think of that sermon? Yeah, it was good, it was entertaining. How was worship? Yeah, it felt good. At the moment, there's just one of the weirdest and slightly fascinating sporting experiments happening in the world. Usain Bolt, possibly the world's greatest track and field athlete, multiple Olympic gold medals, has decided at age 33 that he wants to become a professional soccer player. That's fascinating. Like, is it going to happen? Is he going to make a fool of himself? The guy is worth millions, millions in sponsorship. Now, he could just sit on a beach in Jamaica and drive his Lamborghini home and just, you know, live large. But actually, what he's done is he's got this plan. So his plan was not to go to the world's one of the greatest soccer clubs or Manchester United, who he would love to play for. So he's actually understood, okay, if I'm going to become a professional, I need to go to a professional club, but what's the best place for me to learn? So bizarrely, of all places, he goes to the Central Coast Mariners in the Australian A-League in Gosford. Now, he could just rock up. I mean, the guy's literally, he's like six foot five and the fastest man in the world. Like, he hasn't seen an inch of fat ever in his life, on his body. He doesn't know what Kentucky Fried Chicken is. And he could just literally rock up. Like, but he's actually come. And the club said to him, right, we'll do this, but this could take a year. And then you might not even make it. And, you know, actually, you're going to train. And you're going to train with the reserves of the youth team. And we're sponsored by Hyundai. And you could probably drive a Maserati on Wednesdays and a Lamborghini on Thursdays. But you're actually just going to drive the team Hyundai car that every player gets. And you're just going to wear the same stuff. And you're not going to have your own private dressing room. And you're actually going to not live on Sydney in some, you know, harbour apartment and then drive up to Gosford and get someone driving you or in a helicopter. You have to live in Gosford. It's a nice place. And so this is just absolutely fascinating. Like, can he do it? I don't know. But you look at his attitude. He gets that in the rhythms of the world, that he now, despite being the greatest athlete possibly ever in track and field, he now is a learner. He's now humble. He now has to train. And sure, the guy can run faster than everyone's run before, but he's just got to do drills and just be passing with the inside of his foot for hours on end. That's the exact kind of attitude we need to bring to discipleship. We don't need to bring an attitude of critique or consumerism or critiquing and saying this or saying that, of intellectualism, of opinions, of the opinionocracy. We need to be humble learners. And you know what? If that seems like, oh my goodness, now I'm going to have to become a professional footballer, you know, and I'm not Usain Bolt, I get like puffed out like running 100 metres around my block. Jesus says my yoke is light. And what he's saying there is, there was a common rabbinical saying which was that the yoke of the rabbis is heavy. Because the Torah training you had to do was unbelievable. Now, Jesus says, my yoke is light. He doesn't say, it's nothing. It's still a yoke. But it's light. Why is it light? Because of the Holy Spirit. So, remnants are shaped when they choose rhythms, commitment. They choose to be trained and be humble and spirit-empowered. The most brilliant thing about what he's doing is that he's 33. And you see him training alongside, like... I saw this video of him training alongside 18-year-old youth players. He's like twice their size. Like he's literally gigantic. But he realized he's got to start at the beginning. It doesn't matter what age you are. It's the place of a humble learner. 
Kenneth Bowers says this, the key is this, instead of just mentally believing in the gospel of Christ, we need to start living this in Christ's life now. We need to become practitioners. Not following biblical laws to check a box, but doing practical things to get close to good, like we do with anyone we want to be close to. We need to change the gap, whoops, we need to change the gap between thinking this is not like, this is some magical thing that's not like the rest of the world. The laws that work with relationships work with your faith. Bible goes on. None of this happens by human effort alone. All of it requires the help of the Holy Spirit. As we offer our lives to God through practices that draw it close to Him, it may feel less natural at first. Growing close to someone takes time. A relationship doesn't deepen and mature overnight. And there are those awkward moments in the beginning. Hear that. Awkward moments. That might mean you turn up to a, a, a community group or a triad where you don't even know the people. And for like seven weeks, it might be weird. But keep pushing. Let the muscles develop. But we keep practicing and don't give up. We find that time spent cultivating our life in God is worth more than anything we've ever done. Hear that? Worth more than anything we've ever done. This is the most important thing that you're called to do. This is why you're put on earth. This is the success behind your career. This is the success behind your family life, your celibacy, whatever it may be. This is the thing which is going to drive all of your inhuman endeavors by being a disciple, by being a learner in the ways of Jesus. I just want to end with a reading. You don't have to turn to it. And it's from the book of Exodus. It's a story where Moses has taken the people out of Egypt and he takes them into the world, sorry, into the wider world outside of Egypt towards the promised land. And on this journey, they're attacked by another people group called the Amalekites. That's where the story picks up. Verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men to go and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Moses, so Joseph fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. So Joshua, let me start that again. <laughs> so Joshua, I need to watch more Bible Project. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they put a stone and put it under him. And he sat upon it. So you can imagine the visual. He's doing this, but the battle's going for a while, right? Now, this is okay now, but if I stood here for an hour, this is going to start to hurt. This is like some ancient world Pilates or something, right? <laughs> So he sits down and he's on this rock, but it's getting heavier and it's difficult. Aaron and her held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that, hands, that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites with the sword. I just want to give you two things out of this. Number one is... You can't do this all by yourself. The mythos that we've been told that humans are just these spontaneous creatures who can just feel it and you're going to walk into Christianity and you don't need any rhythms, you don't need any patterns, you don't need support, you don't need community, you don't need people around you, iron sharpening iron, that you can just do this yourself when you feel like it is a myth that needs to be destroyed. You need the ways that God has always shaped people because you need an Aaron 
and a her holding your arms. Now that's different from sitting back in the cinema seats and having it given to you. Moses isn't sitting back just watching, you know, the battle on his phone from home. He's active. He's contending. His arms are up. He's following God. He's holding the staff of the Lord, but he needs assistance as he's doing that. I need assistance. I need patterns. I need people. I need rhythms. I need church to shape me into the disciple that God wants me to be. So you need these things. A commitment phobia, consumerism, all of these ways in which we've been shaped have taught us a myth and that is the reason that so many people are feeling frustrated with their lives and their spiritual lives. The second thing I want to give you, and next week I'm going to flesh out some more practical ways around this, but I wanted to put this issue before us today. But the second truth to this, in 1821 in New Jersey, people were leaving church. The church was declining, as it has in many times throughout history. As the church was in decline, a really interesting movement began. And it was a remnant. And it started with a couple of guys from different denominations. Now, they actually weren't pastors. They weren't leaders in the church. They were actually lay people. And I think one was from the Reformed Church, and I think one was from the Baptist Church. And they got together and they decided to create something they called Aaron and Her Societies. What they realized was that as the church was declining, people were sitting in the pew and just more actively critiquing and blaming what was happening. People were not taking personal responsibility to contend before God. So this movement began and all they did was something incredibly simple. And they gathered these meetings to encourage people to do this. And what they said to people, whatever church they went to, is that when they sat in the sermon, instead of sitting back and just consuming the sermon or even critiquing the sermon, is they said, we need to be Aaron and her. We need to sit. And as the preacher is preaching, be praying, listening and learning and being shaved, but praying, God, keep giving them your spirit. God, May people in this room hear that and be changed. God, if there's anything that's coming against the person speaking now, anyone in this room, stop that in Jesus' name. God, they seem to be tiring. Keep them going. God, let them just speak your word. God, if there's anything that's not of you, may it fall to the ground and may you be lifted up in this sermon. Now, people do this silently. You're not going to see it if it's happening. It's this internal change of posture. Thousands and thousands of people came to faith. The preacher's sermons didn't all of a sudden become the best sermons ever. It wasn't like all of a sudden they became more engaging, better storytellers. What happened was they were furnished by the power of the people of God working together. They don't hear that story as story that's just about the leaders and that God's going to do this through the leaders. It's not the point of this story at all. What it does say is that when we approach 
church through a posture of contending versus consuming, God does things. We need to support each other, not just contend for the people preaching, for the people doing generations, for other people in our church, for the person leading your mid-sized group, from the person who's doing AV, to the person who's serving God, doing Alpha, people going into the world and serving God in their workplaces. We need to be contending for each other. We need to switch on. So, we meet this challenge and this opportunity with a change of posture. And God has done this throughout history and He's going to do it again. So my invitation for you, join the remnant. Step from consuming into contending. Step from autonomy into lordship. God wants to do something. And the brilliant thing about this moment as the church faces a possible decline there's no other choices left. As Michael Heisner says in his book, Supernatural, when it comes to following God, there is no middle ground. So let's be all in for what God wants to do. Band's going to come up. Father, we know that we face some incredible challenges in this moment of hyper-individualism, a consumer mentality. Father, first of all, I want to repent of the times when I consume and just critique, critique. We're so good of it in Melbourne. Father, forgive me when I've taken that posture. Forgive us when we've taken that posture. Father, we want to be all in for you. Turn what you're doing here into a red hot remnant for you. Change what's happening inside of us, Father. Help us to face the battles that The enemy tries to do, just taking a millimeter off here, a millimeter off there, where we no longer are contending, Father. Help us realize that all great things have senses of difficulty, but help us to push through that difficulty into your joy. Father, do something again. We ask this in your name. Amen. Acts 2, 42 to 47 said that the people of God gathered around tables, breaking the bread and taking the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that now. We're going to do this as a symbol that the church is not just meant to be a collection of people with one foot in camp and one foot out camp. This is not Uber Eats. The table commune doesn't come to you. You go to the table. And in doing so, that's actually a prophetic statement that we're gathering around this vision of God's people renewed. That's what red's going to be around. That's what we're going to center it around. So come forward, take of the communion, step into the identity that God has given you. If any of this has been a challenge to you, and not just in the sense of like, yeah, I haven't been doing that, I need to be prayed for. You could be doing stuff and you just want more. If you just want more of God, that's a great prayer to ask. So there's going to be people on the side and ask for God to bless them through their prayer for you, for the empowering of the Spirit. If you're trying to do this in a sense of religion and you've been running around like a headless chicken, if you've been someone who perhaps come from another church where you volunteered your head off, ask the empowering of the Spirit so this just comes with an easy yoke. Let's step into this time now and worship Him.